Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're going to visit the BDS movement that stands for Boycotts, Divestments, and Sanctions Against Israel. There are many types of opposition to the Israeli occupation of Palestine, and BDS is one of these. We, as you may recall, have done a couple podcasts on the Israeli bond program, or as Chuck refers to the Israeli shekel bond scheme, and it's very interesting. So we have some interest in the BDS movement, and we've talked about in other podcasts about the recent Presbyterian Church PCUSA with the publishing of their Zionism Unsettled, which is getting a lot of attacks from the likes of the ADL. Abe Foxman just came out with a major attack against them. And we'd like to visit, uh, in regards to the BDS, our friend, Dr. Paul LaRudy. And uh, he's from the Bay Area. He's a friend of ours because he actually joined us in one of our vigils out in the Bay Area a few years ago. And also, Dr. LaRudy has been very active in the Palestinian freedom movement. And you may recall, he was the only person that jumped out of the one of the Gaza aid boats in May of 2010 when they were attacked by the Israeli army and nine civilians were brutally murdered. And he jumped in. He was not on the, the main ship, the Marimava, but he jumped in to as a distraction to to slow down what was going on being done at the hands of the Israelis. And so this is, we want to discuss here today a letter that uh, Dr. LaRudy wrote to Omar Barghouti, who's the co-founder of PACBI, which is the Palestinian Campaign for Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel. Now, there was a number of campaigns that signed an agreement or a, a document on the BDS movement. And so it was kind of a coalition of many organizations, Palestinian organizations. So with that little bit of a background, we want to read this an open letter to this Omar Bargadi, just written on the 23rd of this year, 2014. Dear Omar, let me start by saying that you have done a lot for BDS and that BDS has done a lot for the Palestinian cause. It is perhaps for this reason that we should all be concerned with potential corruption of the movement and you most of all. I referred to changes of wording, changes of direction, and changes of priority within the movement. The change of wording is the infamous four words, quote, occupied in June 1967, unquote, inserted into the first of three objectives 
in the mission statement portion of the 2005 BDS call signed by 173 Palestinian organizations, such that the statement now demands of Israel, quote, ending its occupation and colonization of all Arab lands occupied in June 1967 and dismantling the wall, unquote. And uh, he's put the occupied in June 1907 uh, in quotes. I understand your argument that this phrase only clarifies the meaning of the original statement and that it changes the meaning not at all. Even so, who gave you the right to make the change without consulting and getting the approval of the signatories to the original call? Why was it inserted without even telling anyone such that no one but you even knows when it was done? If it is so uncontroversial, why not get it approved? Why is the phrase needed anyway? You argue that it results in no change of meaning. Why then is it not superfluous? Since it is a bone of contention, just remove it and be done with it. I also understand the offending phrase occurs only in the, quote, introducing the BDS movement, unquote, section of the website, and that the original wording is preserved elsewhere. However, this is at best misleading and at worst disingenuous. The, quote, introducing the BDS movement, unquote, section reproduces the three demands from the 2005 call completely verbatim except for the added four words, and then proceeds to make the claim that this wording is endorsed by the signatories of the 2005 BDS call. This is deceptive and even fraudulent and must be corrected. The altered wording has been mistakenly quoted by Max Blumenthal in his book Goliath as being the wording of the original BDS call. Your misrepresentation has led directly to his error. However, the wording is not merely a technical problem. The wording is apparently important to you, but why? Could it be that the wording was needed in order to satisfy individuals or groups or interests that demanded this wording? Was it meant as an assurance that BDS would not demand the return of land stolen from Palestinians, but only those lands that were stolen outside the Green Line? If this is the case, it would explain why many, quote, soft, unquote, Zionists who want to maintain a Jewish state but give back the West Bank now participate in BDS but only against institutions that support the Israeli presence in the West Bank. In fact, that is the current priority of the movement, with little or no boycott, divestment, or sanctions aimed at institutions that deny equal rights to Palestinian citizens of Israel or the right of return to Palestinians in the Shatat, and that's the diaspora. Is this a coincidence, or is BDS headed in a different direction than its origins would indicate? Is it no longer a Palestinian movement, but rather a quote-unquote soft Zionist movement? Obviously, people join movements for different reasons, and if Zionists want to boycott organizations that do business with Israel, 
even if only in the West Bank, their contribution is welcome. However, it is quite another matter to effectively turn over the reins of the movement to them or to accommodate them by changing the wording of the mission statement. A Palestinian movement that welcomes Zionists that have limited objectives is quite different from a Zionist movement that wants to limit the mission but accepts Palestinians that have wider goals. Is that what is going on? Perhaps not. Perhaps my concerns are exaggerated, but in that case, please dispel all doubt by removing the four words, Paul LaRudy. Anyway, that's, that's kind of an interesting topic, which goes along with the concept of controlled opposition. We saw that in George Orwell's book, 1984, where all the opposition was actually controlled. And I don't believe that's true today totally, but it's a, it's a good question. Chuck, would you like to give us some what you're doing uh, to, to help Paul? Yes. I think we want to discuss this from the perspective of what it is that the Palestinian people want and what they're trying to achieve. And, and, and frankly, if you were a Palestinian, what your major achievement would be would be to stay alive for one more day and to somehow keep your family together, keep them fed. And, of course, few people have jobs, but the unemployment is, in some places, the unemployment is 75%, like in Gaza. So we have this incredible situation where we have a starving population being deliberately starved by the people that occupy that population, and then every day we're given these critiques about the right kind of politics that should dominate there. And, of course, it comes down to what kind of a state these people should have. Should they have any state? Should they be perpetual prisoners inside a jail until they eventually find a way to escape or die? And what is Israel trying to accomplish? What do they want? What do the people that really have the Palestinian people at heart, their best interest at heart, want for them? And I guess then what do we feel about that? And then finally, is this question of disinformation always comes up whenever you have a conflict. The people that have an agenda usually find a way to uh, produce false leadership to get in the way of or confuse the opposition. It's just standard war activity. It's smoke screens in war and things like that. So I think rather than delving into the details of this one situation, we should talk about these questions about the Palestinians, what Israel wants, what the Palestinians seem to want, what the people that are trying to work for them want, what do we want for the Palestinian people. Craig or Travis, do you have any thoughts? That's all very logical. It infiltrated kind of like the Tea Party has been. <laughs> Absolutely. That's probably a good example. And, of course, we've seen that in the Christian churches. The Christian churches should have been taking the side of the Palestinian people, the Philistines, as we could sometimes call them, to give them a biblical name, since day one, because they knew they were being oppressed. They all have missionaries that at least visit the Palestinian people. And a lot of the churches have simply pulled out of it. They don't want to be involved in the issues, so they have pulled their missions out of Palestine and other uh, Arab states. But there are a good number of churches, including the Catholic Church, 
and the Evangelical Lutheran Church and the Presbyterian Church, the mission-oriented churches that have been there all along, and uh, and they've known what's going on, but uh, nothing has come of it. Little has been said about it. And some of this is because of the false leadership that has taken place from the Christian Zionist churches who simply have said, everything Israel says is right, everything the Palestinians said is terrorism. And we're now seeing some voices coming from even Jewish sources who are making that statement. They're saying that we're all misled by the media and by leaders of this movement to to support Israel at any cost within our own churches, which we call Christian Zionism. So what is Israel trying to accomplish, I suppose? Maybe if we look at that, we'll come to the bottom of what this BDS movement seems to be doing. It seems that Israel's course has been very consistent. They have always talked, always been willing to negotiate, always claimed that they're being abused. And then at the same time as they're doing all these things, at the same time as they're talking, negotiating, and supposedly in good faith, they're setting up settlements, uh, building roads, building gates and fences, and uh, squeezing the majority of Palestinians to some minute fraction of the land that they still have left. I think it's been estimated to be less than 10% of the land in, in, in what's known as Israel. So you have 50% of the people on 10% of the land, and, and they basically are imprisoned now, uh, literally imprisoned by gates, fences, roads they can't travel on, checkpoints they can't go through, and, of course, a wall of propaganda that is constantly being disseminated. So what is Israel trying to, what is Israel's end game? Where do they, where do they expect to go with this? Well, Chuck, let me, let me jump in on that one. As far as the end game goes, I think it's really exemplified in my, my Palestinian friends who are just tired of the fight, and they, they want to sell the property that they have on Ramallah and just be done with it, realizing that it's more than David fighting Goliath. It's, it's a, a battle that can't be won in, in their lifetime or their children's lifetime, and they've, they've just given up. And so as far as the end game goes for Israel, that's, that's the perfect solution, is just that the Palestinians just give up and go away. Right. And I believe you're absolutely right. That is Israel's end plan. And they're not in the least worried about the fact that 90% of the Palestinians don't own any land that they can sell. They've, they've already lost their land. Mm-hmm. They're refugees that are living in camps and, and little huts and... A few of them have been lucky enough to actually accumulate something by virtue of doing business with the others. But most of the Palestinians can't leave. They don't have the means to leave. Right. Unless someone comes along and says, we're going to give you money to leave and we're going to give you a place to go. Where can they go? Uh, They are refugees in all the surrounding places. Syria is a good example. There are close to a million Palestinian refugees depending on whose count you take, in Syria. And they're trapped in the, in a war zone. And then you have Jordan, where they're not allowed really citizenship. Uh, they basically live in tent shelters in camps and try to do business with each other as best they can, as there was business in the ghettos in, in Europe going on. They, they do conduct business. They have schools and they teach their kids. And, and in Gaza, by the way, 90% of the people are literate. They maintain literacy somehow. 
which is remarkable. But Israel is getting their way. But what is the ultimate solution at the point where the rest of the world can't simply feed them forever? There's uh, three and a half, four million Palestinians. What does Israel really plan to do with the, say, two or three million who can't leave no matter what? What are they, what are they planning to do? I believe that they've clearly stated they would just as soon starve them to death. There have been leaders like Ariel Sharon who said that if the politicians would give him the authority, he would eliminate all of the Palestinians. He said this uh, before he became president, that give me the authority and I'll take care of the problem. And he meant liquidating. And, of course, he did that first step back in 2005 by taking settlers out of out of Gaza. There was a big brouhaha amongst the settlers, and they weren't going to move and so forth. Mm-hmm. But that obviously was the strategy to get all the, the Jews out of Gaza so that it could become the world's largest open prison. So you wonder if they're putting the screws to them now. Egypt has closed a lot of the tunnels. So it almost would seem that they want some kind of revolt so they can do a Operation Cast Lead version 2 and destroy even more than what they did back in 2008-2009. And then another thing with getting back to this BDS, well, BDS really is it is a solution. It's one thing that probably needs to be done. The BDS people against Israel point to what happened in South Africa. And Chuck, you might explain about the similarity or the unsimilarity between the two movements and the misconception that the BDS in South Africa was solely responsible for the fall of the white government in South Africa. Well, it's a claim that boycotting Israel and getting companies to divest in Israel and sanctioning Israel by private organizations can force Israel to deal fairly with the Palestinians. And the the claim is that the same movement was successful in doing this in South Africa about 1990, 1987, I guess, to 1990. And the problem is that it just isn't so. The boycott movement against South Africa was a regime change movement that was carried out by our own government in connection with the government of England. And the basic reason for that goes all the way back to World War II when South Africa refused to uh, participate in the war on the side of uh, the United States and England against Germany because they had a, a very friendly relationship with Germany that it had been helpful to them in their past wars with England in 1905. And so they respected the Germans and they would not join in the war. And they established a freedom from the more or less reign of the British government over South Africa that was accomplished by war when Great Britain conquered South Africa in 1905 and set up concentration camps there and starved 40,000 people to death. So South Africa, whatever, without getting into the question of how they ran the government with the the blacks and so on, and uh, the coloreds, which were two classes, they did have race separation there. The reason that South Africa was forced to change their government, as was Rhodesia, 
was actually done by our government, and Henry Kissinger was the Secretary of State at the time. And uh, it was a, a very powerful sanction movement coming from government against government. It wasn't uh, the BDS movement changing life in South Africa at all. But they claim that. Coming back to this question of false leadership in our goals and efforts, the BDS has changed their statement of principles. They originally said that they insisted on the Israelis giving the Palestinians back all the land they'd taken away from them since 1948 when there was an agreement, so-called agreement, which was never fulfilled. Now it simply changed that to say, well, any land taken after 1967, they'll have to give back. So in the meantime, there were 700,000, I believe is the actual figure, who were actually displaced from their own property that was taken away from them and uh, those people have been living in refugee camps. So what Rudy is saying is that you're disenfranchising all those people from 1947 to 1967 by changing the language of your agreement. It's caused him to be very suspicious of this BDS movement. I'm suspicious too, and we're going to write further on it and actually going to do some further investigation because, frankly, we have participated in the BDS movement. We thought it was something our organization should make some sort of a loose connection with. We've gone to their meetings and uh, participated in some of their projects and so on, and, and, and we've seen problems ourselves. What it seems that Israel wants to do is they want to take 90% of the land, or if they can get it, 99% of the land, leave all the Palestinians on 5%, 10%, or 1%, and then agree to give them states. And so they would then have the state of Palestinian that would have no land. And that would equate to a jail as well, because it would be completely surrounded by hostile neighbor on all sides. This Israeli named Michael Palad, who's written this book, he's an Israeli, he says that this is all nonsense, the only possible way for fairness is for everyone to have a vote and for Palestinians and Israelis to have equal representation and democracy within the whole state of Israel-Palestine. And so Israel, of course, will never settle for this because there are more Palestinian voters than there are Israeli voters. And a good part of the Israelis would have quickly leave the second this happened. They're already leaving, largely for economic reasons. So many people have pointed this out, that the Israeli society is crumbling, and what they're trying to do, of course, is simply uh, swallow up all the land and then convert the Palestinians into a state and give them the key and, and then starve them to death in, as the party surrounding them. So my vote goes for all the Palestinians should be allowed to vote, and they should uh, then have a democratic government. And of course, Israel is not willing to settle for that either, by any means. So this comes down now to a moral issue, and we begin to see churches that we have been praying for their help actually starting to stand up and say it's going on far enough. We are not going to watch the annihilation of millions of people. And so in my little response in support of Paul Rudy, 
I'm saying that the Presbyterian Church USA is going to be tremendously confused by this action of the BDS because they've been led to believe that this is a valid organization that's uh, on the right path. And the Presbyterian Church USA has published their study guide for their congregations, which they call Zionism Unsettled. And I've read it. I think it follows the straight path of supporting the Palestinians and pointing out what's happened to them. It's a, a very important move in the right direction. Craig, have you finished your copy of it? No, I haven't. But uh, I definitely want to make contact with our local PCUSA pastors in the uh, San Jose area to expose them to that. A couple of things I want to touch on, Chuck, that you mentioned, that it was the governmental sanctions against South Africa that really had the effect. So my question to you, is the BDS even that effective without any government sanctions? And when you have, like, uh, Allison Weir's group talking about the $8 million a day from our government going to Israel, until there's any kind of government, U.S. governmental support towards any kind of sanctions towards Israel, how could BDS even function at all. I mean, you can only stop so many uh, soda stream purchases at Costco and have a minor effect, but when we're giving $8 million a day to Israel, it seems like any kind of BDS would be just a spit in the bucket. Uh, it's, it's, that's exactly right, Craig. And as you point out, the projects, without getting into the details of the projects that I've seen over the last year, the BDS projects are mostly publicity-seeking projects where they picket some uh, mutual fund that's invested in an Israeli company that makes bombs. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, if that mutual fund sold the stock of that company, it wouldn't make any difference at all to the state of Israel. It might uh, make some difference to a few stockholders in the company, but that difference would probably be very minor because uh, the impact of this is, uh, is aimed at one, say, one mutual fund that happens to have an office in Denver, Colorado. Similarly, the picketing of the soda stream as it gets involved with a movie starlet called Scarlet uh, who can't decide which side to be on but the company has uh, is very profitable it makes 160 million dollars but if of that amount the taxes that go to Israel are probably uh, in the low millions and Israel is selling bonds in the United States in the low billions every year yes. So uh, compared to the sale of Israeli bonds to Americans, that is all money that goes directly in the coffers of Israel, the uh, effect of destroying a company that makes some stupid slop water that, that makes people sick with sugar. And by the way, this company that makes this stuff even employs Palestinians. There's 700 or 900 Palestinians who actually work for the company and have a job that they wouldn't have without the, the job. So not only is it... Uh, is it uh, silly and, uh, and and totally inane in, 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 a, in an effort to really hurt, damage Israel's ability to occupy the Palestinian people? But if successful, it will even do 700 Palestinians out of a job. Probably the only job. If there's one job for every four families, that's uh, that's that's great in Palestine. And so uh, you're absolutely right, Craig. It's uh, there are projects that I've seen have been more publicity and uh, than, than anything, and certainly don't have any significant impact on Israel. Nor do they impact our government, because our government really doesn't care if somebody pickets a company that hires a Hollywood starlet to represent them and, and sells sugar water by the gallon. 
Wait, one, one question. Uh, Chuck, do you know with those four words, who drafted those and put those into the, the BDS document? Do, do we know where those words came from? No, we don't. And uh, at BDS, one of the BDS people here in town that's, uh, that's talking to me about this, it was very helpful in explaining that Mr. Brigatti, uh, while he was an original signature on this, he actually signed for his organization. And at that time, he had an organization called the BDS Movement, capital M. But he does not run this uh, loosely knit organization of organizations that calls itself BDS movement with a small m. And so he probably didn't make the change himself. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure that uh, our friend Paul uh, isn't challenging him for making a, a change that he didn't, didn't himself make. He may not even know about it. But uh, we'll find out all that as time goes on. So we're going to try to be uh, kind to him because he is a, a very dedicated guy who's done some wonderful things. Now, this movement that he uh, is the head of, Brigatti is the head of, which is a, a intellectual thing on college campuses, is something that actually can have impact because college leaders do have influence. And so a, what do they call it, a intellectual boycott? A organization of college professors like uh, perhaps Norman Finkelstein and others that actually are active on campuses could have an impact by influencing young people to understand the situation. But it's vastly different than something that represents they're going to financially destroy the state of Israel so it can't occupy Palestine. Last year there was a uh, boycott initiated by the European Union for academic and cultural events. I can't give you the specifics on it, but so there has been some move in that direction. Yes, and I, I, I think those are all very positive. Don't you think so? What do you guys think? Well, absolutely. It puts the pressure on Israel, and of course mm -hmm. their reaction is to divert attention. They're always pointing at the Palestinians, the rockets they launch, and what have you. I guess the real wild card here is the United States government. As long as our government continues to fund Israel, I mean, if we pulled our aid out within 24 hours, we could probably have the whole situation turned around. But until the U.S. changes its ways, it's going to be tough to change. Exactly, Tom. And that is the reason that South Africa changed, is the U.S. government put pressure on them through all kinds of sanctions. Uh, as we're doing to Iraq today and as we're doing to Russia today. All these things threaten war. But essentially, South Africa could not, uh, did not feel they could cope with it, and they accepted the terms. There was another case of this uh, BDS that we referred to, a, um, a spokesman for the Jewish Voice for Peace. Her name is Margaret Cohen. Jewish Voice for Peace is... Uh, very opposed to Zionism, and they make no illusions about it. They think the Zionist state needs to disappear. It shouldn't even be a Zionist state. They wrote a story, Israel's War Against the BDS Movement, in which they defended the BDS Movement without knowing this change had been made in the policy. And uh, they uh, defended the movement, stating the old uh, statement of principle of the BDS Movement, that it was out to force Israel to divest of all the land it had stolen back to day one, essentially. 
rather than just that, that it, the, the land it has stolen since 1967. Okay, well, that was a, a great program. Thanks for everybody's input. Hope that if this interests you, go listen to our programs on the Israeli bond schemes that we were promoting actually through the DDS, but have not gotten much interest in it. But thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.